is up, nuts? It's Friday night. Finally got a little peace and quiet. And uh, we're six weeks away from Stippy. You guys wanted uh, a pod before the Super Bowl here. And as uh, anticipation starts to build for the upcoming season and, of course, the auction, there's a, a request for a, a keeper preview pod. And... I think that's in the cards, but probably a little premature since keepers haven't been declared and uh, there'll probably be a few more preseason trades as spring training kicks off and the season draws near. Instead, we're going to go a different direction for this pod and I'm rehashing a topic I did around this time last year, which is analyzing the market position by position. So believe it or not, there's a bunch of psychopaths out there that have been drafting for a couple months now. A ton of drafts have already taken place uh, across various platforms and Fantasy Pros compiles all of that average draft position data, which then can be translated into expected auction prices for Stiffy. Now, of course, Stiffy is a, a one draft sample and there's always gonna be some bidding wars that will drive certain players up and in other instances where a guy slips through for a lower price than expected. But by and large, this pod last year was pretty spot on when it came to uh, predicting the market for the bulk of the players. So could be one of the more insightful pods as you start to, to pull your draft plans together over the coming weeks. Um, like I said, six weeks away. Feels like it's coming on pretty quickly this year. So uh, should have a better sense after this of, of which positions are deep and, and available with available talent, uh, which positions you might have to pay up for due to the scarcity of availability. And of course, this requires a little bit of speculation on keepers, which haven't been declared yet. A lot of the keepers are, are pretty obvious, others not so much, but I think we can predict at least five or six correctly for each team. So I'm just using my best judgment here. So uh, we'll go ahead and jump in. All right, so we're gonna we're gonna get started and kick it off at first base. I'm skipping catcher, by the way, because they're catchers. Nobody really cares. So looking at first base, only one out of the top five first basemen are available. Demand's keeping Freddie Freeman. Cupcheck will surely keep Matt Olson, who projects as a fifty dollar purchase. Otherwise. Sean recently traded for and declared Bryce Harper. Ken's got Pete Alonso locked up on a nice deal. So the top first baseman on the board is Vlad Guerrero Jr., who projects for a $45 price tag. Uh, he's coming off a down year by his standards, but he's still only 24 years old, which is crazy. And all of the projection systems peg him for a bounce back to you know 30-plus homers, 100 runs, 100 RBIs in that range, and, of course, the great average and OPS to go with it. After Vladdy, we dropped down a tier to a couple of $30 players, one of those being Cody Bellinger, who bounced back in a huge way last year. Still don't know where he'll sign. Doesn't really matter. Rumors are the Cubs uh, as the front runners. Um, but again, Nick has him for a buck, so surely he's going to keep him at that great value. The other $30 player available is Paul Goldschmidt, Keith has the option of keeping for $26. Tough to say if, if Keith's going to keep him or not. If he does, that means six out of the top seven first basemen, according to ADP. That's the average draft position, not my workplace. 
Uh, six out of the top seven would be off the board in that scenario, which could drive Vladdy's price up even more for someone who wants a big bopper in that lineup spot. After the top seven, we drop down to a $25 projected price for Nolan Jones. Jones uh, had a 2020 breakout season for the Rockies last year. MK loves those power speed combos. He's going to get paid the big stiffy bucks. And then we move down into kind of that $15 range. Both Tristan Casas and Yandy Diaz are $1 keeper options, so you figure that neither of those guys will be available. Uh, the two others in this grouping are Spencer Steer of the Reds, and he plays like four positions in Yahoo, so he could be on someone's draft list for another lineup slot. Then we've got Anthony Santander, who Eli has the option of keeping for two bucks. Hard to say if he'll keep him because Eli has about a dozen reasonable keeper options. But if he does, I mean, there's just, you can see just not a lot available so far. After this group, you kind of get into that $5 to $10 range with guys like Vinny Pascantino. He's coming off an injury riddled season. Josh Naylor, who Boots could keep for $2, maybe scratch him off. Spencer uh, Torkelson, who uh, I think Cup could keep for $2 if he wanted. And then Christian Ancanacion Strand. So, um, Again, a few more guys who might be off the board. And then after that, you really drop down into the end gamers who, who figure to go for $1 to $3. That list entails Nate Lowe of the Rangers, uh, the new brewer, Reese Hoskins, who missed all of last year with an injury that he sustained in spring training, Andrew Vaughn, a uh, 50-year-old, Jose Abreu, Ryan Mountcastle, Chris Bryant. That last one's wild to me. You know, Sean was critical of Boots keeping Bryant last year. At the time, I thought it was a good keeper, former MVP hitting in Coors, but Sean knows his Rockies, and he was spot on. Dude just can't stay on the field, and when he when he's on the field, I guess just not healthy enough to produce much. So all in all, first base is really pretty thin. If you've got a solid keeper here, you're in good shape because there's just not a lot to choose from. You can make a good buy low case for several of the guys in that $10 or less bin, uh, but they all carry their own risk, right? Whether an injury risk or playing time, a bad park, as is the case with Ryan Mountcastle, or just kind of a mediocre skill set. Interesting position, not deep at all this year. Uh, moving over to second base, Cup could keep Mookie Betts for $70. He's certainly a Stars and Scrubs guy, but I'm assuming he's going to toss him back because he's going to be able to reacquire him at a similar price if he wants him. As a betting man, I'd place a wager that Mookie who's now hitting in front of not just Freddie Freeman, but Shohei Otani. I think he'll be the most expensive uh, purchase of the draft. I think he'll go for about 70 bucks again. After Mookie, second base shakes out quite differently than first base. Uh, there, there shouldn't be too many of these guys kept going into the auction. Boots might keep a $7 Kettle Marte, who had a really nice year last year. Demands keeping $1 Bryson Stott. I could see Cup keeping a $2 Luis Arias. That's with a Z, Sean. Um, maybe Eli keeps a $16 Glaber Torres. Again, he's got a lot of options to choose from. So could go either way on a few of those guys there. But running down the list of available players after Mookie, you got Marcus Simeon and Ozzy Albies, who are the cream of the crop. They project to go for about 45 bucks. Drop down a peg to Jose Altuve. Continues to produce. Should be about a $35 player. Then there's a big drop-off after these guys as we move kind of into the $15 to $18 range for guys like Andres Jimenez and uh, Hassan Kim, who broke out for the Padres last year. Kim's also a multi-eligible guy, so he could be a target at another position like shortstop 
which we'll, we'll cover, and, and that, that's pretty thin over there. After those guys, you drop down into the single digits. Guys like Zach Geloff, who I think had a pretty nice little breakout with Oakland last year, but don't know much about that guy and whether it's repeatable. Tommy Edmond, who, you know, with speed just being infused into the game, that really kind of sucks his value out. So I can see why he's um, kind of in that, that, you know, $10 range or so. Um, after that, he gets cheap, $5 or less bucket. You got Tyro Estrada. Jonathan India, Nolan Gorman, Christopher Morell, Edward Julian, a couple crusty old guys, and Jeff McNeil and Brandon Jury. Overall, though, you know, at the position, there's really kind of something for everyone here at various price points, and you can probably sit back and, and wait for a nice value opportunity, unlike first base, where you've got to either pay up or go dumpster diving to fill the position. Moving over to the hot corner, demand. Won't be keeping a $61 Jose Ramirez. I don't blame him. Um, Ramirez, he's still the most sought-after fantasy option at third base. He's starting to slow down ever so slightly. Regardless, he's going to flirt with a $60 price tag once again this year. He's far and away the best option there. The next best three options are all going to be kept. Ken's keeping Rafael Devers. Decker's keeping Austin Riley. I think Ferd's going to keep Gunnar Henderson. Paid 25 bucks for him last year. And, um, you know, would be probably a $35 buy, maybe 40 bucks this year. He, he came through pretty nicely, and the arrow was pointing up for him. And then you kind of drop down to the $35 range for the next best option after Jose Ramirez, and that's Manny Machado. Uh, then you get a few guys in kind of like the $25 to $30 range. One of those is my keeper is Royce Lewis. Don't get me wrong. I like Royce Lewis at 7 bucks. It's crazy to me that people are paying the equivalent of, $25, $30 in draft capital for a guy who's basically played one full season over the course of his career combined. He just can't stay healthy. Um, then you get some some veterans in, in Alex Bregman and, and Nolan Arenado. And then after those guys, third base really drops off the cliff. You got demand keeping Josh Young for a dollar. And then all of a sudden, we're in the sub $10 range with like Max Muncie, Alec Baum. Muncie always goes for a bit of a premium in MK because he's a huge OPS guy. But then after, you know, Muncie and Baum, you're you're in the end gamers, the one to three dollar guys. You got Jake Berger, was his breakout power surge real? I think he's in Miami now, which is not a great park. I think he got traded. Uh Cabrian Hayes, will he finally start hitting the ball in the air? He's just kind of a perennial sleeper. Matt Chapman. Now, if Chapman signs with the Giants, that's gonna murder him. Uh, but maybe his price gets pushed up if he signs elsewhere. A couple older guys in Eugenio Suarez and Justin Turner. And then lastly, a couple big hype prospects, Noel V. Marte of the Reds and Junior Caminero of the Rays. And you definitely figure they're going to get pushed up a little bit due to the Keith factor. So third base, not too many guys being kept, but it's rather polarizing. You're either buying one of the top four guys available for you know 25 to 40 bucks, or again, $60 in the case of Ramirez. Otherwise, it feels like first base where you just got to kind of take a shot on a guy with question marks. And so you put those things together and corner infield is going to be a really interesting slot to fill because there's not going to be much out there. Uh, just, just not any really like safe, reliable options in that $15 range. It's kind of boom or bust at both of those positions. Moving over to shortstop. And uh, if you have a shortstop keeper, congratulations. If you don't, good luck. Seven of the top eight 
and eight of the top 10 shortstops are going to be kept. Bobby Witt, fantastic the deal that Nick's got him on. Corey Seager, who I think is in jeopardy of missing opening day, but nonetheless is locked into a contract. You figure Lindor is going to be kept by Decker. Bo Bichette, Sean's got him on a contract. A $5 Nico Horner is going to be a keeper of Keith's. I've got a $4 Ellie $4 De La Cruz. That's another one. I'm, I'm shitting on my own players, but that's crazy to me that this guy, people are paying upwards of $30 for him or the equivalent of in draft capital. And I like Ellie. I love him at $4. He could go $30.50. There's an equal chance that he spends time in the minor leagues or even starts in the minor leagues because he was really bad down the stretch last year. He's very raw, swings at a lot of bad pitches. I mean, all the upside in the world. Again, don't come lowballing before him. I'm keeping him for sure at $4 because he could be a superstar. But the fact that people are paying that much for him in redraft leagues is nuts to me. I just uh, I don't get it. People are stupid. Um, CJ Abrams, another big breakout last year. Decker's got him for a dollar. I'm, I'm saying Decker's name a lot. So and this isn't a keeper pod, but Decker's got some good keepers. And I think he's got even more on the pitching side. I think he's done a good job setting himself up here. O'Neill Cruz, Ferd's going to keep. So all these guys spoken for. Again, that's seven of the, or, or eight of the top 10. Trey Turner is the number two overall shortstop. He's available. I mean, he could be kept, but I think it's Sean or so. He ain't getting kept. Um, he's going to push 60 bucks again. After Trey Turner, the best available shortstop, who's going to cost a lot of money. After that, the next available option, according to the market, is red sophomore Matt McClain. Who? I've heard the name. I never really looked into this guy because he got called up last year. Someone scooped him up, and he went looked about 15-15 and, and just over a half season of work. Really good year. Looks like a good player. But you're going to have to spend 20 bucks for his services to find out if he's real. If you don't want to spend the 20 bucks on McLean, you can spend that on Xander Bogarts. Maybe a little less exciting than McLean, but probably a little more bankable. Uh, Eli could do the room a favor by throwing $8 Dansby Swanson back into the pot, but I imagine he's going to hold on to him, especially given the scarcity at the position. Keith has a lot of keeper options as well, but he loves the youngsters. Anthony Volpe as a $5 keeper, probably going to stick around on his roster. A um, little bit of a light hitter last year, but stole a, a shit ton of bases, as I recall. So to this point, all these names I've listed, we might be looking at three guys available at shortstop. And we're all the way down at the end game at this point, the $1 to $3 territory. Willie Adamas, Carlos Correa. Which may sound intriguing to get Carlos Correa that cheap, but as someone who's had him, I'll tell you, sure, fine, plug him in, but the guy kind of sucks now. Ezekiel Tovar, Jeremy Pena. Of course, we've got Jackson Holiday. Now, he's going to go for a lot of money just by way of his elite prospect status and the fact that the, uh, the Orioles are pushing for it. They're going all in. If he proves his readiness this spring, he might break, you know, break camp on opening day. Um, and again, worth noting that. Some of the guys we covered in the second base category do have shortstop eligibility, so maybe there's a little more to work here than I covered, but it looks awfully thin. Going to round out the hitters with the outfielders, the number one outfielder and the number one overall player, no surprise, Ronald Acuna, won't be available. Cup, him, Cup has him on a glorious contract, like $35, but just worth every penny and more. A contract, so next year... That's it's going to get nuts. Let me tell you a quick story about Ronald Acuna. So 
every like December or so, that's when the steamer, one of the more popular projection systems, puts out their projections. And that's usually the time where I got a little bit of an itch and I'll start just poking around. And you can go on Fangraphs, they have this auction calculator tool where you can plug in your league settings and run the steamer projections and it spits out dollar values. Just a you know, I again scratches the itch and I kind of get a glance at you know the the first pass at, at how projection systems are looking at guys. When I do that, and I've done it for each of the last handful of years in December or so, the top top ranked player, top dollar value assigned according to the projections, is usually about forty-five dollars. Now keep in mind, even though it's our league settings, there's no inflation because I'm it's not accounting for the keepers, and we tend to pay up for the top top guys anyhow. But the top ranked players every year are valued at about $45 according to that auction calculator. If you run that this year with Acuna, he was like 65 or 70. He was 20, $25 more valuable than the next guy. If he was available this year, 80 is the floor. He could go for $90 if he was available this year. Maybe we'll see it next year. But I don't know if he's going to put up another 40, 70. Maybe he'll come back down to earth a bit. But I've never seen a projection system separate someone that far from the pack. Like this is that's probably what you would have seen in in peak bonds years. Just nuts. So $35 to cut, but great value. Um moving on. I digress. Sean locked up Julio Rodriguez on a six-year extension, and he's still a great value. Even at that, I think it's 32 bucks or so. I've got Kyle Tucker for a couple more years at a crisp $18. Then down at number four and five on the outfield list, we have our first two available outfielders. They happen to patrol the same outfield in the Bronx. That's Juan Soto and Aaron Judge. These guys are going to cost you 60 bucks, 65 MK pays up for elite talent, and there are some really elite available uh, players available this year. You figure, hey, like, not everyone could just go spend sixty dollars, sixty-five dollars on seven or eight players. Um, but the keepers are pretty strong. There's some guys with a lot of money, so I'm calling my shot here. These guys are going to go for sixty plus. I think we're going to see a handful of guys get big MK paydays six weeks from now. Sean pairs Julio with Corbin Carroll and Shohei Otani. So we gave Sean some shit for how much money he's spending on his keepers, about 185 bucks or so. But he's got some truly amazing talent, so I really don't blame him at all. Tatis is kept. Jordan Alvarez is kept. So after Judge and Soto, you see a major drop-off to the next tier. And that's the $35 or so range. You got Michael Harris, Luis Robert, and Randy is it Robert or Robert? I still don't know. And Randy or Rosarena. Now Keith could keep Luis Robert, Robert, uh, for thirty bucks. Maybe take him off the board. Harris and Rosarena will get paid. Again, they're just the type of players, the players that inspire bidding wars in MK. Then we drop down a touch to the thirty dollars range. With Christian Yelich, Boots is probably going to keep him for fourteen. And then Mike Trout. Projected $30 price tag, less than half the price he's gone for the last decade. The market is just finally fed up. He can't stay on the field. The skills are beginning to erode. Still, again, these numbers are just driven by the data. I, I would say Trout's probably going to go 
closer to 40 because, uh, hey, Kamish is in the room. And he's a proven sucker when it comes to the true kingfish of Anaheim. And he also represents the end of a tier. Because after that, you drop down to the $20 range. Cup could keep an $18 uh, Jazz Chisholm. Quite possible. You'll also find George Springer and Nick Castellanos here. Springer is Decker's Mike Trout. He always gets bit up a bit. In the high teens, you've got Josh Lowe, Evan Carter, Seiya Suzuki, Cedric Mullins, Teoscar Hernandez. You drop down a tier to the $10 players, Jordan Walker, Lane Thomas. And you've got the uh, Asturi Ruiz, Ian Happ, Masataka, uh, Yoshida, and TJ Friedel in kind of that $7 or $8 range. And then you're kind of on to the end gamers. Jorge Soler still without a team, Stephen Kwan, Riley Green, Chaz McCormick, James Outman, Lars Newtbar, Dalton Varsho, disappointing last year and doesn't have catcher eligibility. JD Martinez, he doesn't have a team. Starling Marte. Well, he's going to go for $39 to JD. We can't break tradition there. Uh, but then back to the end gamers, Lourdes Goriel Jr., Jaron Duran. Then a couple of guys I paid like $15, $20 each for last year, and Taylor Ward and Tyler O'Neill. Really, just really great buys from Kamish there. Um, and in that last group, we also got a couple of blue chip prospects who will surely get pushed up in a keeper league. You got Jackson Chirio of Milwaukee. He just signed like a six or eight year extension. So don't know why he wouldn't break camp with them. Someone will pay up for him for sure. And then Wyatt Langford of the Rangers. Um, he was like the third overall pick in the draft last June. I saw him play in the College World Series for Florida. He, he looked major league ready then. He just destroyed the minors and moved up a level like every two weeks in the summer. And then when Adelise Garcia got injured um, in the uh, World Series, people were kind of saying, like, are they going to pull him up? Like, are they just going to throw this this kid into the World Series? And a lot of people thought he was ready for it. So he ain't going for $1 to $3. Again, this is a redraft league format. So in the Keeper League, he's definitely going to go for a lot more. But outfield, in my opinion, shakes out kind of like third base. There's plenty to choose from at different price points with different skill sets. Should be able to snoop around and shop for bargains. Even if those bargains aren't necessarily the cheap end gamers. There should be some value buy opportunities that will present themselves throughout the auction. All right, we're going to close this out with starting pitching. I'm not going to cover relievers because we know that game. Some guys pay up. Some guys grab a couple of cheap scrubs and open a prayer. Some guys punt. I'm also not going to cover starting pitchers all the way down to the end gamers because... Here's the reality with starting pitching in NK. After about the top 30 or so ranked starting pitchers, you basically get into the $10 or less bin. It's just a matter of who likes a guy a little bit more, um, who has money left, who has pitching slots left. You see guys go cheap sometimes just because people filled their spots. It can happen pretty quickly. So that's a free strategy nugget. If you want to piece together a staff without paying up for top talent on your pitching staff, just scratch off the top 30 starting pitchers from your list, and you can go shopping and fill out a rotation outside of that top 30 for, for 10 bucks or less per spot. Let's take a look at that top 30. So first, we got the super aces, Spencer Strider, Garrett Cole, Corbin Burns. Before you torch me about, oh, Car Corbin Burns wasn't an ace last year. As a reminder, this is not my list. This is the market's perception. Burns is has been and is going to continue to be drafted 
like an ace now, especially with a trade to a super friendly pitcher park in Baltimore. Doesn't matter anyways, because he's being kept by Decker, and I have to think he's also keeping a $32 Spencer Strider. So pre-flop pocket aces for Decker. Uh, Eli also has the option to keep Garrett Cole at 51, but I think he'll toss him back. You know, even though he went for for 51 bucks last year and just won the Cy Young, and he's a top available starter, I think he just has too many other options, and he knows he can probably get him back in that 50 to maybe tops 55 dollar range um, if he wants him back this year. Just behind the super aces, you still have some legit frontline guys in Zach Wheeler and Kevin Gossman. They should both be uh, pushing low 40s. They're both available. After those two, there's a really large grouping of like that $30 to $35 range. These are starters who who have ace potential for sure, but the very least would be a, a studly number two. Luis Castillo, Zach Gallen, Pablo Lopez, Yoshinobu Yamamoto, George Kirby, Tyler Glass now, Aaron Nola, Tariq Skubal, Logan Webb, Blake Snell, Max Fried, Fran Valdez, Freddy Peralta. So a lot of guys in that range that fit the bill, but mostly kept. Obviously, Yamamoto's available, being his first year in MLB. The only other guys in that group that are available, Aaron Nola, Max Fried, Blake Snell, and Freddy Peralta. So given the scarcity, I expect all those guys to go 30-plus. Quick side note, Tariq Skubal, Eli has him for $5 because he drafted them in the last round of the supplemental. Happens every year where someone scoops up a star in that sup draft. Eli got a great keeper there. After that group, more keepers, though. Kodai Senga, Logan Gilbert, Grayson Rodriguez, Zach Eflin, Jesus Lazardo, Yuri Perez, Dylan Cease, Joe Ryan, all off the board for pretty good prices. The available arms in that $15 range, guys like Kyle Bradish, Bobby Miller, Justin Steele, Joe Musgrove, Cole Reagans, basically all 2023 breakouts who you have to pay up for to see if it was real, uh, with the exception of Musgrove, who's obviously shown he is good. I think he battled injuries last season, if I recall correctly. So after that, still plenty of intriguing arms, but we're in the sub $10 range at this point. Justin Verlander. Jordan Montgomery, Shane Bieber, Tanner Bybee, Chris Sale, just to name a few. Sounds crazy to hear some of those names um, and, and think they'll go as cheaply as I'm suggesting. Surely a couple of those guys on name value will get pushed up into the teens. But history will tell you, again, after the top 30, pitching starts to get really affordable in that range and beyond. So, hey, quick and dirty, but really rip through the uh, kind of the market overview. And hope you enjoyed the pod. Stick around for bonus coverage if you want to hear my take on the Super Bowl this year and uh, how I'm looking at it and how I'm probably going to bet it. All right. A little bit of bonus coverage. Super Bowl preview. About a week away. And Nick's Chiefs take on Ken's 49ers. Patrick Mahomes trying to secure his spot. As an inner circle, you know, in, in the inner circle of, of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, even though I personally think he's already there. Going up against Brock Purdy, Mr. Revelevant, last pick in the draft, playing the role of the Dragon Slayer, trying to silence all those haters once and for all. I think that storyline in and of itself makes this game super intriguing. Taylor Swift be damned. Um, which, by the way, I don't know why that bothers people so much. Who cares if Taylor Swift's at the games? Like, get so up in arms 
who cares, have fun. Anyhow, my quick thoughts on this game. I've had a pretty good year betting the NFL this season, and I credit much of that success to an evolving philosophy when handicapping games. So the traditional means uh, of handicapping a game is developing some sort of power ranking system that factors in numerous variables, and it ultimately spits out a number uh, for each team, and if that number differs from the spread, you bet your side. And it's my personal belief that's a great starting point, but ultimately, in football, um, styles make fights, right? And no matter how much great data you can account for, you're if you're simply just aggregating team strengths and weaknesses in a vacuum, I think you can be led astray. And so before the games uh, last weekend, there was look-ahead lines posted for each of the four possible Super Bowl matchups. Um, before the games started, that, that look-ahead line that the Chiefs, if the Chiefs meet the Niners in the Super Bowl, the Niners would be three-point favorites. Um, by the time those games went final, the Niners opened up as two-and-a-half-point favorites. The Chiefs quickly got bet down to, to one, and now it's kind of settled back in like the two-point range. And I don't think it's going to move too far from that. If it's not going to get to three, and I think if they move it any closer, you know, back to the Chiefs to like a pick them, I think the books are going to get more San Francisco money than they're comfortable taking. I think it's going to sit right around two. And like, it's the most watched and most bet on game uh, or, you know, event of the year, every year. So for anyone, myself included, to think they really have like an edge here, uh, you're kind of, it's kind of a, a foolish position to be in. Um, they're, the books just are not going to leave themselves exposed to get crushed either way. So they're going to do a good job of getting money on each side. It's really hard to, to bet the Super Bowl. You're flipping a coin for the most part. You know, in, in some games you have the, the square side and the sharp side. I would think right now, I think the sharp side is San Francisco and the square side is the Chiefs. But it's not necessarily where my money is going yet if I place a bet. I haven't placed a wager yet. Um... So it seems like, you know, betters are already kind of buying into the Chiefs after impressive road wins against the Bills and the Ravens. They're fading the 49ers after they struggled at home to get by the Packers and the Lions, both games they easily could have lost. Here's how I'm looking at this game. Right, so going back to styles make fights. For me, all eyes are really on the defensive coordinators and who will be willing to break away from just kind of sticking with what got them there because each of their defensive schemes are both prone to get roasted if they don't make some adjustments and change things up. So offensively, the Chiefs did not look great at a lot of points this year. They looked really good lately, but they had a lot of, a lot of struggles this year. Uh, there was one stretch where they didn't score a second half point for 10 consecutive quarters. Uh, Travis Kelsey looked like a shell of his former self. Patrick Mahomes really lacked, still lacks weapons at the wide receiver position. Rishi Rice has stepped up a bit lately. <clears throat> but if you break down the Chiefs' offensive success and their struggles, there's a very clear variable that influenced their outcomes. Mahomes shredded zone defense, and he struggled a lot versus man-to-man -man coverage. By the numbers, he was six times more effective against zone than man coverage. And this makes sense to me when you consider that teams didn't fear the Kansas City wide receiving core. They felt confident they could man up to those guys, bring different blitzes, um, 
fucked with Mahomes, and a lot of those KC drives stalled out because he didn't have playmakers really to, to get the ball to, to beat man coverage. When they dropped in the zone, Mahomes picked them apart. You've seen him do it, right? Like, he's going to find somebody. So what does San Francisco like to do on defense? They play very conservatively. They trust that elite front four to get pressure on the quarterback, and they sit back in zone coverage. The Niners only played about 140 snaps in man coverage all season long, which is like on average two snaps a quarter. Almost all zone, almost every snap. That plays right into the Chiefs' hands. If they do this against Kansas City in the Super Bowl, Mahomes is going to put up points on just about every drive, and the Chiefs are going to win their third Super Bowl in five years. If the Niners are willing to mix it up and trust their secondary to cover that weak wide receiving core man-to-man, and they can bring different types of pressure, I think that's a different story. Now, man-to-man, you, you expose yourself to quarterback scrambles. Mahomes can do that pretty well, but the Niners, their, their linebackers can chase him down all day and I think keep him pretty contained. They're also, the Niners are very good at defending tight ends in coverage, so they can limit Kelsey's damage, uh, force Mahomes to make quick decisions, throwing out to Rice and MBS and Justin Watson and that goofball Kadarius Toney. Um, if they do that, they could slow down the Chiefs a lot. Maybe you end up giving up a 60-yard touchdown bomb to MVS on one play because you got caught with your pants down. He blew the lid off the secondary. But to me, that risk is, is better than just sitting on your heels and letting Mahomes put together these 15-play touchdown drives. And by the way, even if Mahomes gets that bomb look to MVS, MVS is probably going to drop it anyway. So anyways, looks, look at the other side here, right? The Chiefs defense under Spagnuolo play the exact opposite. They play a lot of man they trust their corners to line up one-on-one against receivers and, of course, get some help over the top depending on their scheme. Their willingness to trust the corners on the island allows them to stack the box against the run, potentially contain, to a degree, Christian McCaffrey. <clears throat> it allows them to bring various uh, blitzes, force pressure. Of course, this approach is riskier and, and definitely easier said than done when you're asking your corners to man up against Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk, you still have to count for McCaffrey um, and Kittle. I mean, like it's not—it's easier said than done against those types of weapons. But, and the reason I lean the Chiefs at the moment is I'm more confident that Steve Spagnuolo is going to mix up the defensive looks to screw with Brock Purdy than I am for San Francisco to break from their core defensive approach. Purdy is the opposite of Mahomes. Purdy rips apart man coverage, and he struggles versus the zone. And that makes sense when you consider the weapons he has, right? Debo, Ayuk, McCaffrey, Kittle. You can't cover all those guys simultaneously in man defense. Someone's going to get open. Um, Purdy's also good at reading the blitz, right? Throwing the ball to the spot where the blitz are vacated leads to a lot of completions, run after catch opportunities. Pause while I drink my beer here. So if I'm the Chiefs, I'm also now challenged to break away from the plan that got us here. I got to play more zone, disguise some zone blitzes, put the ball in Birdie's hands and say, okay, if you can methodically move the ball down the field against the zone without making too many mistakes, we'll tip our cap to you. One thing about Purdy is he will make mistakes. He throws some really ugly picks. He did that last weekend. Uh, One was dropped. One bounced off the defender's face mask for a 45-yard completion to Ayuk. Against Green Bay, he threw one right into the numbers of Darnell Savage. Would have been an easy pick six, put the Packers up 17-0. Savage just dropped it. He's getting away with it. 
Purdy's going to feel the weight of the world on his shoulders. I think he's going to make some mistakes. Just a matter of, of do the Chiefs make him pay the way the Packers or the Lions did it. So at the end of the day, if you tell me the Niners are going to break away from their usual defensive scheme, bring more pressure, force Mahomes to beat them in man coverage with a lackluster suite of weapons, I'd like the Niners a lot because just their physicality, their talent outside of the quarterback position, they're far superior. But they didn't show any desire to adjust their defensive game plan against the Packers or the Lions. So I just, I don't know that they're going to do that now all of a sudden. So I'm considerably more confident Spagnuolo devising a game plan that's going to limit the explosive playmakers on the Niners, force Brock Purdy to be that immaculate quote-unquote game manager that everyone deems him to be. I think Purdy's going to make some mistakes. I think the Niners are going to play a little too conservatively on defense and Mahomes is going to pick them apart. So... Right now, I'm leaning Chiefs. I haven't bet it yet because it's kind of at a dead number at plus two. You know, it's not going to get to three. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit on a little bit more, digest a little more information to see if my opinion changes. But right now, I just, I, you know, if, if bullet, uh, gun to my head, who's going to make the adjustments and actually drop the game plan on defense that can shake up the other team's offensive rhythm? I have more confidence in the Chiefs. And by the way, I get Patrick Mahomes. So right now, leaning Chiefs. Haven't placed my wager yet, but I'm sure I'll throw a hefty one out there and pray for the best. All right. Hey, catch you guys soon.